Hi, folks. It's Michael Shelley here. Larry Tamblin was in the Standells, really put the band together and has kept the band together. Uh, one of those guests that kind of didn't always answer the questions, uh, which not, you know, uh, it's not always my favorite kind of interview, but, uh, uh, you know, clearly his love for the Standells and uh, for the music is clear. And uh, I think you'll enjoy this interview. The, the sort of 19, early 1960s L.A. scene is something that I can never get enough information about. And uh, he tells some pretty funny stories here. So uh, check out my interview here with Larry uh, Tamblin of the Standells. There are the Standells. That really is just one of the greatest songs ever. I really believe it's true. Uh, joining us on the telephone, Larry Tamblin of the Standells. Welcome to WFMU, and good morning to you. Hi, Michael. It's great to be here. Uh, you born in Los Angeles, I believe, and uh, you're a teenager in the nineteen mid nineteen fifties. Just as rock and roll is sort of exploding, did you know immediately that rock and roll was going to be your future? Uh, I had a good indication of that, although uh, all of my, my my stepfather and my brother said it's a waste of time. I, I had that inclination. <laughs> uh, uh, so you had a sort of a career as a solo artist for a while. You put out some some singles, and they're a little bit in sort of the pop idol vein in a way. And then sort of as the 60s came, you, you formed the Standells in the early 60s, around 1962. Tell me, this is pre-Beatles, what is the L.A. club scene like in the early 1960s? Well, it um, it, it was, uh, you know, before the early 1960s, uh, it was mainly, uh, you know, solo artists that, that were happening, and even groups uh, like the Four Seasons, who I much admired. Uh, 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 they made them into a do-rock group. I mean, nobody ever played their own instruments back then. And if they did, they pulled them out from out, uh, in front of their instruments and uh, made them into something else. So, you know, it really wasn't until the Beatles happened that it became fashionable to actually be a group and play your own instruments. Gotcha. So you had guys uh, like Tommy Sands or whoever who would be backed by a band. So and so when yeah. you guys started the band, I mean, I, I, I get this, you know, this feeling of L.A. in the early, early 60s, you know, all these baby boomers are now in their teens and 20s and, and whatnot and ready to go out and, and party, and there was kind of this need for clubs and bands, and, and the Standells sort of formed in that, that spirit, I'm guessing. 
Yeah, yeah. It uh, the clubs, uh, you know, they needed self-contained groups. Obviously, they couldn't afford a dozen people, uh, you know, to to uh, perform. So, so to have a self-contained rock group that did their own singing and their own music was was quite in demand. We were working all the time back there. Uh, I must tell you, you talked about my early days. I mean, I started recording when I was about 16, uh, doing solo records for Eddie Davis Farrell Records. And uh, I, uh, I actually uh, was an acquaintance of Richie Valens uh, in the early days. Uh, we used to compete for, uh, uh, we had our own bands, kid bands, uh, doing uh, uh, wedding parties and uh, quinceañadas and things. And uh, in the process, I met uh, Richie a couple of times, and I was just completely blown away by his talent. Hmm. Yeah, uh, we had Chris Montez who sort of said a similar thing. He was on the show and he said he used to play on bills with Richie sometimes or see him and would just be blown away by the guy. Yeah, uh, Chris Montez was another one. Uh, that's really neat experience. You know, uh, I, I'd always been a follower of his, uh, you know, since the early days. And uh, he was out of that same vein and is probably one of the early. Uh, you know, one of the early pioneers of, of, of uh, Chicano rock, you know, and I was involved in that as well through Eddie Davis. I worked with a lot of early Chicano groups, uh, you know, like the Premiers, uh, uh, you know, uh, Los Lobos, people like that, uh, who, who they were a special kind of a brand of, of early rock and roll. So they meant a lot to me, and uh, certainly Richie Valens was... Uh, was the greatest, and uh, I have a great story about Richie Valens. I don't know if you have time for it, but uh, sure, go ahead. It's one, uh, it's, it's one of the funniest things. Uh, now it's funny. It wasn't at the time. After his death, you know, uh, I got the bright idea to go uh, audition for his record company, Delphi, and uh, so uh, me and a couple of buddies uh, from high school went over there, and they wouldn't have anything to do with us. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a bunch of kids showing up to the front door. And uh, so what we did, uh, here's a bunch of 16, 17-year-old kids. We set up in the men's restroom and we started to play. <laughs> this is the truth. And uh, one of my old high school uh, alumni just reminded me of this. And uh, so we set up, and they finally had to, to listen to us because everybody was complaining that <laughs> they couldn't use the restroom without being bombarded by rock and roll. And uh, so they had us... Uh, Come to a recording studio, and uh, and uh, I wrote an article about this. You can find it on uh, on uh, Standell's Facebook page. It's called "The Death of Larry Chamblin Almost." Uh, because what we did is, uh, you know, we went and did this session, and then uh, Bob Keane showed up later on to listen to what we did. The first song that we recorded was uh, something written by me and sung by me. It was called "Rockin' at the Cemetery." Which is <laughs> the best choice of materials right after Richie Valens' death. <laughs> and uh, Keith uh, listened to that, and he threw up the, the lyrics in the in the you know he, he threw them up and walked out, and uh, and uh, it was very disheartening to to both he and us. And uh, uh, and of course, you know, Delphi never went on to have another hit on that label. Uh, he did change labels and. Uh, he had some major acts under them, but uh, never under Delphi. 
Yeah, that's right. a w- welcome to show business. Great welcome to show yeah. business story. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Welcome to show. You never know who you're going to run into on the way up and the way down. <laughs> so it's the early uh, it's the early 1960s, and Standells are are forming. You you guys play in Honolulu of all places, get a gig in a club, and then you're back to L.A. and some personnel shifts, and you get signed to Linda Records, uh, and your first uh, releases come out on Linda, and then you get signed to Liberty. Uh, was it easy yeah. to get a record? deal at that time for a rock band well uh linda records was also owned by eddie davis and uh you know he's the one that really discovered me and put out the singles so he's the one that introduced me to uh some of the other members that would eventually become the standells now we just uh they had a band called the starlighters and uh there was tony valentino and uh another guy uh 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 uh, I can't think of a name right now. But anyway, uh, they all kind of fell apart. And then there was the three of us. And uh, so we formed a new band. And I came up with the name Standells. Because we were stand- doing a lot of standing around agents' uh, office trying to get work. <laughs> and that's how the name was the natural Standells. And uh, so uh, when you say, uh, you know, we had records on on, uh, uh, on Eddie Davis Linda, they were just early recording sessions that we we did, uh, you know, for Eddie, and uh, and he didn't even bother to release them until we be, we had a big hit, of course, with uh, with uh, with some other others like Dirty Water. Then he really released them and, and, and promoted them. Now that's interesting. So, how'd you get signed to Liberty then? Uh, this is this, this again is a true story. Uh, the guy that discovered us became our manager. It was a great manager. His name was Bert Jacobs, and uh, Bert came in to see us. We were playing in this club in Hollywood. It was called uh, uh, the Peppermint West, and it was like uh, it was kind of a franchise of the Peppermint Lounge in New York. Uh, but this place was really wild. It was owned by a, 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 a fashion designer, Marusha, and uh, Hungarian. She says, "I want this. I want to do that. I want you to do twist tonight. Do twist." And she would speak like this, and uh, of course we had to do what she said. Uh, and uh, so we were playing in this club. We, we were the house band uh, there for about a year. Uh, and uh, we, uh, in 60, 1963, uh, a lot of people don't know about this, but we discovered a photo of the, of the Beatles uh, in Europe, in a European magazine. We said, this is really cool with the hair and everything. Let's do this. And so we started uh, Beatlemania there. There's some places an article on that, but us with the long mops uh, back in '63, and one of the teen magazines came out and did a spread on it. And uh, we were doing a lot of Beatles songs, plus our own songs. I mean, they're all the same. Uh, uh, all both the Beatles and us did Twisted Shout. We did that, and uh, uh, everybody claims that uh, we were just a cover group. Well, it's almost everybody else back then. You know, the Beatles were a cover group. Uh, they did, uh, you know, money. That's all I want. We did money. Uh, you know, and so uh, we were playing in this club, and uh, Bert Jacobs happened to be in there, and he came up to us, and he said, uh, you know, hey, uh, we didn't know him. He says, hey, if I can get you signed to Liberty Records, would you sign me with me as a manager? We said, sure. <laughs> we didn't have a manager. So he gets a signed sight unseen with Liberty Records. And, uh, and we found out the way he did it was Bert 
was uh, was a bookie, and uh, he would take, uh, take a lot of bets from people, including many of the uh, big wigs at Liberty. And so that's how he got us in there. <laughs> they were into it so much, and uh, that's how I got a sight and scene with Liberty Records. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, you know, we, of course, we made a couple of recordings uh, for Liberty. Uh, the problem with Liberty uh, in and even BJ after that, as we were just paired with the wrong producers. Uh, the guy they assigned us was uh, Dick Glasser, and he took a really wild, raunchy song that I wrote called The Shake and uh, turned it into, uh, I don't know how best to describe it, uh, but as a, a doo-wop polka. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's supposed to be really wild, and, and he had a clavinet solo in the damn thing. Can you imagine that? Yes. And it's real wild. It's, it's a kind of like a Joey D and the Starlighter shout. And, uh, and, and they put doo-wop singers behind it and just ruined the song. And uh, you know, back, back in those days, uh, there weren't too many George Martins around. And, uh, you know, we had to basically do what the producer said. And uh, so he ruined that song. And, uh, uh, and then we uh, did another. The, uh, uh, we had just signed with uh, Liberty. I mean, after we had just signed with Liberty, we had just signed with a uh, uh, growing nightclub at the time. They were kind of part of the Sunset Strip. They were down a little bit further on Santa Monica. And uh, uh, Trini Lopez had uh, just left them, and uh, he had recorded an album that was quite successful. And uh, so they brought the Standells in as the house band. Uh, so you recorded yeah. live at PJ's, right? Yeah, and and at that time uh, we uh, uh, we had our drummer quit us like two weeks before we do the album. Uh, that was uh, uh, Gary Walker. We had a change of personality. By then, we had uh, uh, Tony and, and me and uh, Gary Walker and Gary Lane. And uh, Gary Walker just quit us. And, uh, you know, he, he formed the Walker Brothers, and, uh, and along with a couple of people that I knew over the years, uh, you know, John Moss and, uh, and, and Eccles, uh, uh, I knew both those guys, and, in fact, uh, 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 Scott Engels, it's Scott Engels. Uh, Scott Engels and I were in the DMLA together when I was 14. And, uh, and John Moss was the first act, he and his sister Judy were the first act to go to Hawaii right before us. They left and we came on. Shows you how small the world is. But, and Gary didn't even know them at the time. He wasn't with, so he got a hold of these two guys. They formed the Walker Brothers. Uh, they, they moved to London and became a huge hit over there. So uh, Dick Dodd has just joined the band, and he ends up being a yeah. great, great find because he's a great drummer and great personality and a lead singer on some of the greatest hits. And kind of quickly, you get signed to Tower, which is a uh, affiliate of uh, Capitol Records, and uh, now yeah. it's now it's kind of the mid '60s, and uh, things are really blowing up in the sort of post Beatles w- world. Actually, you know, actually, we signed with Ed Cobb's company, Greengrass Productions. They in turn signed us with uh, with Tower Records. Gotcha. So Ed is the guy who ends up writing a lot of hits for you guys, a lot of your most well known yeah. songs, and and becomes your your producer. Also around this time, it's very interesting. I guess this is one of the perks of living being an LA based band. You end up 
being in the monsters and in movies like Get Yourself a College Girl and Ride on Sunset Strip, and you're on Ben Casey and the Bing Crosby show. Uh, that must have been fun. Well, it, it was. In fact, uh, I think uh, if I'm looking back now, um, uh, you know, the first television show we did was, uh, probably was uh, Ben Crosby. Now, I, I'm not sure. Uh, we also on the Ben Casey. We were just a background group in that. But Ben Crosby, we actually acted in, uh, but we played a fictional group called the Love Bugs. And, uh, and, and that was neat. We had a lot of connections. Uh, our uh, Ed Cobb's company had an agent uh, that had a lot of show business contacts uh, that, uh, that got us in on those. They were, at the time, looking for some group <laughs> that could fill the void of the Beatles. Everybody wanted the Beatles back then. And, uh, you know, uh, I think the, the funny thing is that everybody thinks, you know, we had rather short hair when we did those shows. Well, we had long hair before that. We were forced to cut it off because uh, none of the nightclubs would take us uh, with the long hair. Uh. So we had to cut cut, uh, cut the, most of the long hair off. And, uh, you know, they referred to us as, uh, a, 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 you know, a, a number of names, which I'd never heard before, uh, you know, so like uh, frat, frat rock. Uh, that's a new term that mm. uh, it got, it got, somehow it got by me. And uh, we were just doing ourselves. We were just a rock and roll group, you know. And uh, Ed did sign us, and uh, he did write Dirty Water. It was completely unlike uh, the original, uh, what we ended up with. We took and arranged it, uh, gave it a different feel altogether, uh, wrote in the guitar riff, uh, the, uh, a lot of the lyrics in it, and... Uh, and much of the, the stuff that made it into what it is, and we didn't get any writer's credits for it, and did not even arrangement credits. Uh, Ed's friend, uh, Lincoln Mayoga, got the uh, arrangement credits, and he never set foot inside the studio. <laughs> yeah, I've heard, I've heard that story. It's a weird studio, a weird story that Lincoln would get the credit for that. I mean, are you saying just point blank that you feel you deserve the writers, some of the writers' credit on Dirty Water? Yeah, I really feel we do. Uh, yes, because uh, I mean, clearly, I, I really feel clearly. Ed was a songwriter, right? There's a storm a coming, and why pick on me? And sometimes good guys don't wear a white. Uh, these are all songs that he's credited with, and they're good songs. I, I did he write all of those, or? Yeah, I, if you look at Wikipedia, we also make that claim that we should have gotten writers credits on that because we did. Uh, if you would have heard the song, he wrote a standard blues song that happened to be, uh, you know, about. Uh, uh, you know uh, about Boston, and and there he had the experience over there. Supposedly he was mugged, and and uh, you know, but it was it was basically a sixteen bars, uh, thirty two bars blues song. It wasn't much about it, and uh, you know we really made it into what it was. By providing the, the riffs in, into the song. Well, let me ask you this. If somebody uses that yeah. song for, you know, a car commercial these days, do you guys get royalties from the master side of, of it? Yeah, yeah. Well, anytime they use that for movies, uh, uh, in fact, they just used it uh, in, in a movie recently last year in, in which we got uh, nice royalty checks from it. Uh, but yes, we do. We do get royalties from that. Uh, however, we don't get royalties when it's played on broadcast. They're trying to change that. 
Right. Uh, but only the writers uh, get uh, a writer gets uh, royalties for broadcast. You were talking. And, you were talking earlier about uh, the band being, you know, sometimes labeled as a cover band. But I, you know, and I, as I listened to the band all week long this week, it kind of struck me that you know you were a band that played that you were a live band to start with and you played several sets a night and of course you've got to play covers to fill out several sets a night and so kids can dance and then there's some originals thrown in and then there's some sort of pop songs like songs that uh that writers you know like ed would write just for you guys and then there's kind of a, a natural garage sensibility to the band like the riffs that you guys came up with and then later in the band it sort of gets a little bit psychedelic and i sort of think to me all of those things are what are the standells, whether it's covering you know a, a song very straightforwardly, or whether it's rearranging "Dirty Water," or or whether it's your originals. To me, all of those things are are what make the standells. Uh, yeah, thanks, but thanks for, for for mentioning that because we do consider ourselves a rock band, not a cover band. Uh, you consider you know cover bands, you have to consider Rolling the Rolling Stones because they worked in clubs. Uh, you know the Beatles, you too worked for, in clubs for years, and most of the stuff they did was was cover songs. You know, uh, but yeah, we did manage to to get in original songs, and uh, you know it, it's just the way it was. Nowadays, the kids get together, they hardly know each other, and they get sold to signed to a million dollar record deal. You know, and uh, they've never performed together. Uh, and it just wasn't the case back then. I mean, we knew each other pretty well for years. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing that the Standells, have, you know, you, you started over 50 years ago making records. It's a long time. I was reading an interview on the web, uh, you know, preparing for this, where somebody was asking you about specific songs, and a bunch of them you said, you know, I really can't remember a thing about it. You know, it's a long time ago, and it's, amaz- <laughs> it's amazing that there's still a Standells. One other thing I saw was that you're, you were on a, a gig with uh, the Rolling Stones, and the admission was $5, and I was trying to think, well, how much money could the Standells have, have been paid to, to play on bills with bands like the Stones? Uh, well, you know, we, we, we made good money, but, you know, it, it's certainly not the money they get now. It, it's just like, you know, let's face it, you know, that was, that was uh, you know, 46, 47 years ago. And, uh, yeah, the admissions were great, but they got, uh, were low, but they got huge crowds. And, uh, you know, they filled stadiums. And uh, so that, that money all went to something. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Stones got most of it, and the rest of us got, you know, uh, you, you know a little bit less. Uh, but there was, uh, we were on a tour with them, actually. It wasn't just one show. We were uh, on about a month-and-a-half-long tour that took us all the way across the United States. Is that, uh, as, is that as much fun as it sounds uh, to do that? Uh, it, it was It was fun, but it was crazy, too. Uh, you know, they, the Stones back then, I mean, they were kind of a uh, mystique to us. You know, uh, uh, Mick Jagger, uh, uh, Keith Richards, and Brian Jones, they kind of stuck to themselves. <laughs> they didn't socialize very much. Uh, I, I knew much better. I knew uh, uh, Charlie Watts and, uh, and, and Bill Wyman. Uh, but the three of those guys, they just, uh, you know, they were they were just kind of weird, uh, <laughs> and uh, and and I mean those guys. I I, I got to tell you, I am surprised uh, that, that that with the exception of Brian Jones, that they're living today. I mean, they were doing so much drugs back then. I mean, these guys were into everything. That plane we were on could have flown without the engines. <laughs> we, we were on one flight, as a matter of fact, in the. Uh, uh, 
this is the truth. The uh, the pressure window on it. Everybody was stoned in there, except me. I didn't do drugs back then. Uh, but but everybody was stoned, and and uh, the pressure window on the plane uh, split, and so uh, it it lost pressure. The sta- uh, the the plane had to go into a steep dive to get down to to where it would be the proper air pressure for us. And you never saw a bunch of stone guys sober up so fast in your life. And <laughs> it was quite amazing. Uh, <laughs> we had plenty of adventures on that tour. Uh, I can remember, you know, uh, playing at Lynn Stadium in, in Boston and the, and the huge crowds there. And the, and we were right in the middle of it. And the Stones started playing Satisfaction. And, and all of the crowds rushed toward the stage. And they, the security there uh, shot off uh, tear gas, and uh, and they had to cut the show short, and uh, and it literally was a riot. And uh, the only way that we could get out of the stadium was to get in our bus that brought us there from the airport, and we had to drive through clouds of, uh, of tear gas to get out. And I want to tell you, man, that was a terrible experience. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, so the band goes on with, with a few personnel changes, and you know, by the late '60s, it just seems like the Standells are, are over pretty much. Did you guys? Was it a conscious thing, or, or or what happened exactly? Well, it's you know the way a lot of groups go. They have you know different ideas of what they want to do. Uh, Dick uh, always made it pretty clear he wanted to be a solo performer. Uh, he quit the group. Even while it was popular, he quit. Uh, he, he quit the group right after we made Dirty Water, as a matter of fact, uh, and uh, went with some group. And uh, and he couldn't stand a couple of the members in the group. Uh, not me, but uh, couldn't stand a couple of the others. And uh, uh, so he left the group. We we brought in Dewey Martin. Uh, this was in uh, I want to say early '65. From Buffalo and, Springfield, uh, right? Yeah, and Dewey Martin. I, I love Dewey Martin. And uh, and uh, so uh, Dewey actually performed with us for a while, uh, for a few months, and then uh, during this time is when uh, Dirty Water started climbing the charts. I mean, it started off in a small station in, in Orlando, of all places, WLOF, and uh, went on to be number one there, and then went into Miami, and uh, spread on up the coast until it was a big hit. But during this time, we were playing clubs uh, in California, and uh, we were up in, in uh, uh, San Jose playing in this biker bar up there, and uh, that was quite a kick. And uh, uh, but you know, we heard from Dick Dodd that he wanted to join, rejoin the group again because it was suddenly the record was getting played, and I didn't want him you know, back because I didn't want the, the trouble. And uh, but uh, the other guys wanted him back, so we had to fire Dewey and and, uh, <laughs> and and bring Dick back into us. So he quit back then, you know, and then he uh, he quit the group back again, and uh, and I became friends with Dick. You know, I just didn't think he was dependable, uh, but I became friends with him, and uh, uh, he quit the group again in 1968, uh, and uh, it was just a uh, uh, it was a time that we were just starting to go down a little bit. We hadn't had a hit record. I mean, our last attempt, uh, as you know, was uh, so, was Try It. And uh, that, according to everybody, was headed toward the, uh, the top of the charts until uh, uh, this uh, uh, 
moral majority idiot uh, out of Texas, Gordon McClendon, decided to uh, start a campaign in obscenity and record lyrics, and he deemed our song to be the the the, uh, the worst of, of the bunch. And uh, uh, the, the lyrics to to write on such a, uh, to uh, uh, to uh, try it were. You know, by the way you look, I can tell that you want some action. Action is my middle name. Come over here, pretty girl. I'll give you satisfaction. The two are needed for this game. I'll give you sweet love you've never had before. I mean, that's about the extent of what the lyrics were. And he was pending this as being obscene. It was encouraging young girls to have sex. Now, uh, so so uh, we, uh, Art Linkletter, heard about this. And he had us, uh, did you hear about this? He had us uh, yeah. on his show debating McClendon. He had a, uh, at that time, he had uh, Art Linkletter's house probably, but he had a small segment uh, called Let's Talk, where different factions would debate each other. And uh, he had us on there debating McClendon, and we killed him. We absolutely killed him. And it was mostly funny stuff that they edited out, by the way. They wanted to make him look more even-handed. But can you imagine this idiot, you know, dressed in a suit and... uh, in, in talking about obscenity and record lyrics, and here the Stones had "Let's Spend the Night Together" out at the time, uh, and and he was picking on the Standells because we weren't as, as big as the Stones, and uh, so we, you know, we would come up with the, you know, what about uh, some of the lyrics of songs of your days, like "Birds Do It, Bees Do It"? What are they talking <laughs> about? <You know? laughs> he couldn't answer that, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we we massacred him, and uh, and. Uh, but the, he he ruined the record. It was number one in a lot of markets. They, a lot of them stopped playing it because he he did was a had a national campaign that uh, he just told people not to play it. And he was very powerful. The owner uh, the owner of radio station KLIF in Dallas and a programmer of a lot of stations across the country. They just stopped playing it, and uh, so it uh, it was really a. a, a a major disappointment to us because we thought it was going to be a hit. So it's, that it's, was kind of the, the downfall of the Standells. Mm. So in the you know the Standells many reunions over the years, and it seems to be sort of a little bit more of a permanent thing now. And you guys regularly tour and uh, and getting some real good reactions and around the world. You know the you know it's funny as the years go by, uh, the different generations sort of catch on and and the legacy kind of grows. That must be fun for you. But in the intervening years, what did you do to you know, did you still play music, or did you get a Squaresville job? What'd you do? <laughs> Me, myself, uh, I was so sick of the whole thing, uh, and having to depend on other people that that didn't that this just didn't seem to to give a damn about things, and uh, including Dick, he quit again in '68, and uh, went on a solo career, which went nowhere. Uh, and I just thought, you know, I'm not going to have my livelihood depending on this this kind of stuff. So I went into I was a, I was a recording engineer. Uh, I actually studied under uh, uh, Richie Podler and uh, Bill Cooper, who are engineers and a lot of our earlier uh, recordings. And uh, I did that for a while, and then I went into children's products. I was a producer of uh, uh, of uh, Children's records. I worked for Mattel Toys for a while, developing children's products, and uh, so I had a whole different life in that, you know. And uh, eventually, uh, in the '80s, we had a call for a reunion, and uh, and uh, you know, they're, they're all the originals got back together, and uh, we did some gigs. We did, uh, you know, uh, a big uh, uh, 
concert in, in, in at this hotel at uh, Harrah's in Reno. Uh, we were there for a week, and uh, and it just ran into the same old thing again. Uh, <laughs> people that you couldn't count on uh, that were into other things and into drugs, and and uh, uh, they just uh, they weren't dependable and. Uh, so that didn't last long. Then we had another reunion uh, a little bit later in the 80s, and uh, this, none of them seemed to work out. It was always the same kind of problem. And uh, was finally back in, uh, uh, I, I got to tell you, and a lot of people know this, uh, Dick Dodd had a, a dependency problem. And, uh, you know, I loved him dearly, but he did have a dependency problem. I tried to you know, help him any way I could, but he always had a bunch of friends that uh, he would run to that would encourage that behavior. And uh, and this is the way it went. And, you know, every time we would get together, it would be something that would stand in the way like that. And uh, so I think finally, you know, we, uh, uh, you know, we were called uh, by the Red Sox. This was a highlight uh, in the, uh, uh, in the, in 2004, uh, First of all, before that, we did K-Stomp in New York. We got together for that. That was a big thing. We put it on an album. And uh, then we got a... Right after that, we got called to do a tour. And uh, none of the guys wanted to go on the tour. It was a beautiful tour to, to uh, Spain. None of them liked traveling. And uh, none of them wanted to go. And so we had to cancel that. And so uh, after that... We got called by the Red Sox uh, uh, for the 2004 World Series to come over and perform, and that was quite exciting. Uh, I got like the call the day before uh, they wanted us to come, and then, hey, would you guys like to come over and play for the World Series? <laughs> <laughs> Who gets a call like that? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, they had us over. We actually performed before the 50,000 crowd and we were just huge stars over there and it's great yeah your song is basically uh, the national anthem in boston yeah dirty water well it's uh it's it's their uh, uh unofficial they call it the unofficial winning anthem now whatever that means but they play it every time they win at home and uh we've been to the red sox games uh uh for, to, to almost every world series since 2004 uh they brought us back in 2005 for the home opener against the yanks Every time we went, they won, <laughs> and then but they brought us back for the uh, ACLS uh, championships in uh, uh, 2007, and then they just brought the Standells back uh, recently in 2013 for the, the World Series, and yeah, we didn't perform this time. We just sat up in the stands, but it was really exciting. We were there when they won won the World Series. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. yeah. We're just kind of the, the good luck charms for them, and uh, they always seem to call us when they need us. You know? uh, but, you know, uh, during this time, uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I, uh, it was in 2009, and we had another tour lined up. I really wanted to do this full time, and uh, none of the other guys wanted a tour. They wanted the Red Sox things and the things you go out and, and and you do, and you get your money and come back and go about your business. Uh, but I wanted more, and uh, I sat down and talked with all of them, and, and I said, here's what I want to do. I want to retire from working. I wanted to spend my time, you know, half the year just uh, just touring and having, you know, and living out my life and enjoying myself. And, uh, and they all agreed. They said, that's great. You know, and so 
we put together uh, uh, another tour, an East Coast tour, right after that. Uh, uh, we did a big show in Las Vegas in, uh, in, uh, in 2004. They contacted us for that. And, uh, uh, and I got to tell you, I was really, uh, it was probably one of the worst performances that Standells ever did. Uh, I couldn't get those guys to rehearse. And, uh, you know, uh, they could care less. They were getting great money, and they're, they're playing at the Cannery in Las Vegas. But uh, I had talked to them before that, and I said, this is what I want to do. I want a tour. I really want to make that happen with the Standells. They all agreed, but yet none of them uh, wanted to do anything. And uh, finally, uh, we put together a tour, another tour in, in, in New York and uh, the East Coast and in Canada, and uh, all of them backed out. So I said, you know, it sounds to me like you guys really don't want to be part of the group anymore. That's what it sounds like. And, uh, you know, uh, you, you just want the, you just want, you want, you want the gravy, but you don't want the other stuff. You want, you don't want to get, get out on the road and, and do the good things. And uh, they said, yeah, that's, that's kind of it. And Tony uh, said, you know, I got this other group that I joined and I'm really more interested in them. All right. And, and uh, uh, they were called the icons. Larry, we got to uh, we got to wrap this yeah. up a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. Gabon. That's okay. We I think I I think I get the picture. Uh, the the website is the standells official dot com, and Larry Tamblin has been speaking with us. I'll tell you what I've got queued up here to get us uh, out of here is the song "Ride on Sunset Strip." Well, tell me about this song. Well, Ride on Sunset Strip was written by our current member, John Fleck, who came back into the group uh, uh, later on. And uh, John's an outstanding performer. He wrote a lot of the early Standell stuff, too. Uh, and he wrote it along with, uh, with Tony Valentino, and, uh, but John did most of the writing. They wrote it in 45 minutes, and uh, <laughs> just an outstanding song. Wow, 45 minutes. That's amazing. Uh, are you guys, do you, is there any uh, Standells gigs coming up? I think I saw one on your website, the Tiki Oasis in San Diego in August. Is that right? Yeah, we just finished the national U.S. tour coast-to-coast, uh, to coast, uh, uh, you know, last month. And, uh, and then we just, uh, we just uh, uh, did a big concert in Italy at uh, Parma. Italy, uh, it's a big. Uh, it's called Festival Beat. We just got back from that, and then next month uh, we're going to be headlining at the Tiki Oasis in San Diego. That's on August seventeenth. All right, and friends, uh, so can we're, ch- we're keeping very busy these days. Good friends can check out standells-official.com for information. Larry, thanks for joining us. It is. It's what a fun story and an interesting story. Oh, thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I gabbed on too much. That's uh, okay. You can also find us on Facebook. We have a great Facebook page, and we're constantly updating on that. Yeah, you're always posting cool old uh, scrapbook stuff and yeah I, I yeah recommend the Facebook page all right here is uh right on the censor strip uh Larry Campbell thanks so much you're welcome nice talking with you Mike I'm going down to the strip tonight I'm not on a stay home trip tonight Seems to be the main attraction But the heat is causing all the action Bright lights everywhere Pretty girls with long, long hair But somehow the people, they don't care 
Stadt sie fährt.